excited to be here. It, as you saw on the screen, we're starting a brand new series today. We're in February already. It is the month of love. And uh, how many of you know that relationships, any relationship where there's a love relationship, it is a battlefield. And uh, we're, we're stealing a line from Pat Benatar back in the 80s. And I, I said I was going to sing that song today. I am not going to even think about singing that song, but uh, I am going to preach, which is much, I, I preach better than I sing. I promise you that. And uh, we're going to be preaching on the tension that we have in relationships. It's all, there's always battles in our relationships. This is not a series about marriage, even though marriage relationship is a big relationship for those of you that are married. Uh, this, this covers all relationships, whether it's with your spouse or your kids or your boss or your teacher or your principal or your friends, whoever it is, there's always going to be tension in that relationship. And yes, even in our relationship with God which is what I'm going to be talking about today. We're talking about four different battlefields over these next four weeks. We're going to be talking about um, nice versus kind, uh, forgetting versus remembering, trust versus control, and today, he versus me. I mean, you know, as long as we are on this earth, our relationship with God is going to have tension. There's a, it's a battlefield. The battle is not him fighting against us. The battle is us fighting against our love for ourselves and loving him more than we love ourselves. So our, our text verse for today is out of Deuteronomy. I'm gonna ask you to stand with me if you would please in, in honor of reading God's word. Deuteronomy six, verses four and five. It says, hear, O Israel. In other words, listen up, children of God. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Do you believe that today? Amen. One God, one and only God. And this is, what they, this is what it says that we are to do for that one and only God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. In other words, let there be no doubt where your allegiance lies. Love him with everything you got. There's no part of you that does not need to love the Lord your God. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we love you. We thank you for your sweet sweet presence in this place. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. And we thank you today, God, that it is your word that changes us. So we come today with expectant hearts that you would transform us more into your likeness. And God, that we would never look back. We would always look forward in our relationship and our love for you. And God, I pray that our hearts today would be good soil, that you do your work in each one of our lives, that your spirit would open our eyes to your truth and that it would produce fruit in our lives that will remain. We'll give you all the glory and the praise. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen, amen. amen. Before you're seated, turn to your neighbor and say, I'm glad he didn't sing. <laughs> Don't say it with so much conviction. <laughs> we even thought about me lip syncing while Luke sang. That would have been funny. Um, you guys would have thought I was really good then. So our culture loves love, right? We're wired in such a way that we love love. Because uh, love, in its, in its best, on its best day, in its best form, is a beautiful thing. Warms our heart, you know? We love romantic comedies, rom-coms. We love love songs. In fact, we love love songs about love songs that we even hear sometimes. And uh, In fact, in my research, uh, I saw that about 60 to 65% of all songs with lyrics that are written are written about love. We love love. And God designed us that way because God is also love. So... We love love, but the problem is, is that we have allowed our society, we've allowed our culture to define love for us. And our culture 
has lied to us. It has told us that love is this primal emotion, this feeling we have that is just makes us, gives us goosebumps. And that's what real love really is, that it's boiled down to being a feeling. And you and I know that love is so, so much more than a feeling. But sadly, we've allowed the world to, uh, their viewpoint to infiltrate the church. You know, the world says in marriage, if you fall out of love with your spouse, you just divorce them. Or if you fall in love with someone else while you're married, you divorce them because you just, you know, you, you, love, you fell in love with this other person. It's, it's almost as if we are this helpless victim of love in our life that, oh, I just fell into love with someone and I can't control it. You know, I, I didn't want this to happen. It just kind of happened. I'm a, I'm a victim of love. And we've allowed that to infiltrate into the church too in some ways, that it's all about how we feel in the moment. And even in friendships, you know, it's about if a friend hurts our feelings, then we can reject them, we push them away, or we ghost them. Right, youth? We ghost them. If you don't know what that is, talk to one of the youth afterwards, they'll tell you. Uh, but it's about what have you done for me lately? It's about what it's self-serving, what's in it for me. That's what the world says love is, and we've allowed that to infiltrate us. And we've even allowed those those thoughts, that conception, misconception of love to even, to even affect our love relationship with our God, which is really tragic if you think about it, that we are letting the world who doesn't know God, doesn't care about God, affect how we approach our relationship with God. But we've done it. We've done it in many, many ways in our life. And we don't even have to, uh, we, we don't have to allow the world to dictate how we are going to love in our life. We know that love is not just an emotion. We know that our emotions lie to us. We know that our emotions are basically the crazy uncle you stay far, far away from and you don't trust him, right? That's what we do to our crazy uncle. But we, but we allow those emotions sometimes to lead us. Love is not about emotion. Love is dedication. It's commitment. It's, it's respect. It's, it's revering. It's all those things. Now, there is the emotional part of it, but it's not just the emotion. In fact, that verse that I read, my text verse, tells us what love is meant to look like in our relationship with our God. First of all, the Bible says that we are to love with all of our heart. So we love God with our heart. That's our emotions. So the Bible's even telling us it's okay to allow you, for you to be emotionally attached to your heavenly father. That's a good thing. We want to be emotionally attached to him. But then it also goes on to say that we need to love him with all of our soul. Our soul is our mind. You know, it's, it's good for us to even our thoughts, that we would love God even in our thinking, that we would think about our love for him, that we would allow his love to penetrate even our thoughts. And then it even goes a step further to say that we are to love him with all of our strength. And our strength is basically our will and our determination, that we are, that we are willing ourselves. We, we will not allow our will to take over, but we're going to let his will have place in our life and that we're going to be determined that we are going to love him. We're going to use our, our fortitude, even our strength to love him. And it's important that we have all three of these in our relationship with God, that we don't just let one, because if we're just riding on one, if you're just riding on your emotional feeling towards God and, and listen, sometimes you know, especially in a church service and the worship's good, you get emotional and you hear a lyric in a song that just really stirs you and you get emotional, you might even cry, you might really get excited. That's a beautiful thing. 
But man, your love relationship with God cannot be based solely on that. Because then in those moments where the Bible says you're supposed to bring a sacrifice of praise, you're not willing to do it because you want to feel good. You want to get up in your feels, right? And feel good about how God feels about you when in reality, it's so much more than just that emotional side of us. It has to have all three of those things. Emotion is a wonderful thing in relationship when the emotions are high. But man, our emotions are a dastardly foe when they're low. Man, they're low. They, they will lie to you. They will tell you all kinds of things that aren't true and cause you to make decisions that you can regret. So they can't be the, they can't be the driver in our relationship with God. And all of us would say that loving God is a good idea, right? Even the most, the newest Christian, the most shallow of us all would say, yeah, it's a good idea to love God. I mean, it just makes sense. It's part of, part of his plan for us is that we would love him. But when we read that verse in Deuteronomy, and not only is it quoted there, it's quoted many times throughout the Old and New Testament of what it takes to really love God, it can seem like that's a little excessive, doesn't it? That I have to love him with all of my heart and all of my soul and all of my strength. I mean, we wouldn't say that out loud, but that's how we feel sometimes because that's a lot to ask of me to really love a God that I can't really even see with my eyes considering all that I have to go through in a day to really, how does that even look? And I would, I would challenge us today and say that probably a lot of Christians don't have any idea what it looks like to love God that way. And I'm, I'm hoping to help us today. Because I'll say this, Jesus doesn't, he doesn't lessen that, that verse in Deuteronomy 6 when he quotes it. In fact, he takes it to another level uh, in Luke 14 when he's talking about what it looks like. He says in verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So if we're going to love him, he's saying, if you're going to love me, and he doesn't mean to literally hate your father and mother, your wife, children, brothers, sisters. I know if you're a teenager, that might sound appealing. That's not what he means. He's saying in comparison to our love for him, our love for our family and those we care about should look like hate because there's such a big gap there. But then he goes on to say, yes, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. Are you telling me that I have to love you more than I love myself? Absolutely. This is the battlefield between he and me. In fact, I'd go as far as to say, you know, the greatest force in all the world that is keeping you from loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength is not the devil. It's not society. It's not non-Christians in your life. It is you. You are the greatest force keeping you from loving God with everything that he has called you to love him with. You notice, I mentioned this last week, there are no verses in the Bible that talk about loving yourself. We didn't need them. I don't need a Bible to tell me to take care of myself. That's innate. It's, it's natural. I'm good with that. I'm good at it. Nobody's better at taking care of me than me. And God, so God doesn't tell us that we have to take care of our, in fact, there's only one verse that I really found in the Bible that even talks about how we feel about ourselves in respect to uh, our personal feelings. And it's in Ephesians 5, 29, the apostle Paul, he says, after all, no one has ever hated his own body. I guess Paul was never a middle-aged man. <laughs> That's not what he means. He doesn't mean his literal body, uh, but he feeds it and cares for it just as Christ does the church. That's how, that's how, uh, that's the only verse that I can even find that talks about how we care about ourselves because 
we all know that we do that naturally, and it's in all of us. So how do we do it? Because, you know, every good initiative that God gives us, every good command, every directive, every, uh, uh, every good thought that he gives us and, and equips us to do and commissions us to do, for every one of those, there is, an, uh, there is the, the opposite of that too. There is, a, there is a force working against that, whether it's our flesh, whether it's the enemy of our soul, whether it's society, whatever it is, for every good thing that God asks us to do, there is an equal force trying to keep us from doing it. And we have to be aware of that tension. We have to be aware of the fact that we are on a battlefield in our relationship with God. So I wanna give you a few uh, of these tensions of the battlefield of he versus me. And the first one, we're gonna look at his posture. God's posture in our relationship with him. And that is the battle of give versus get. And let me explain. First of all, as a Christ follower, it's safe for us to say that we want to love God. I think that's a given. If you've given your life to Jesus, if you've received his work on the cross for your, for your forgiveness and for your sanctification, there's a natural response that we know we want to love God, especially when we see what he has done for us. But here's the thing. And I want, to be, I want to be very clear in talking about this, that we have to first be able to get to receive his love for us before we can give him our love. See, if, we, if our response to him is based on, well, he did this for me, he died for me, he, he came and he paid for my sins, he paid this insurmountable debt that I could have never paid on my own, which is all true, and our response is to do that because he was generous to us, so we need to respond in kind. The Bible tells me I need to you know, deny myself and live for him, and we do it based on what he's done for us. We can start out well, but eventually we will lose steam. Because the number one foundational thing that we need to understand and know if we're gonna really love God is to understand his great love for us. And I can tell you today, church, there's a lot of Christians out there that don't have an understanding of his great love for us. They're doing what they're doing. They're trying to serve him. They're trying to live for him based on, well, I know what he did and I know what the Bible says I have to do, but it's not based on a revelation of his love for us. The reason he did those things for us was not because he looked down and said, oh my goodness, look what the human race did. They messed up. They brought sin into the world. They're never gonna be able to pay this, this debt no one else can do it but me, so I'm going to have to go do it. And they're going to owe me big time when I do it. Right? That's not him. That's not what he did. In fact, 1 John 4.19, the Apostle John tells us, he says that we love because he first loved us. Romans 5.8, God, God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So his death for us was the demonstration of his love. Not, oh no, I have to go do this for them because they messed up. It was because of his love. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It's all based on his love for us. And we cannot give him love until we receive his love. You can't love God if you've never received his love. We love him because he first loved us, okay? And so, and some of you may be sitting here and saying, you know what, that's news to me. I've never had that, I've never really understood God's love for me. I've never experienced it in that way where I've felt an overwhelming sense of just how much he loves me. It's been more of an over-encompassing, encompassing, overarching thing of God just loves the world and I'm just lucky to happen to be one of the people in the world. 
It's not like that at all. You could personalize every one of those scriptures. For God so loved me that he gave his only son. God demonstrated his love for me in that while I was still a sinner, he came and died for me. I love because he first loved me. We can personalize these and it's imperative that we understand and we build the foundation of loving God based on his love for us, not just in response to what he did for us. It's a small mind shift, but it's a big deal. And we, it's very, very important that we understand it. What motivated him to do what he did for us was his love for us. And there's a great, a great way to demonstrate or illustrate this from the word of God. When you look at the, the uh, disciples, Jesus' disciples, you know, he had an inner circle of three that were closer to him than even the 12. It was Peter, James, and John, right? And they were his tight inner circle that he even brought into more things than he did the rest of them. Two of those disciples, Peter and John, we know a lot about them because there's a lot of quotes or things that we see from the word that they did and they wrote a couple books of the Bible too. And, and one thing we know about Peter is that he was loud, boisterous, he spoke his mind and he was very uh, vocal about his love for Jesus. He would tell Jesus all the time how much he loved him. You know, he's like, oh Jesus, I'll never let them take you away. I'm willing to die for you. I'll do whatever I gotta do. And he, he's always trying to prove his love for Jesus. John, on the other hand, when you read the gospel of John, you see how John talks so much about how Jesus loved him. He calls himself the beloved. He said, I was the one that Jesus really loved. And, and he, won't even re he just refers to it multiple times. And I remember, you know, when I was younger in my faith, reading that and thinking, man, John was really arrogant. I really thought Jesus had a thing for him. You know, he really, really loved John. But you know what I, I came to realize is that John just had a revelation of Jesus' wonderful love for him. And you see that demonstrated when they, come, when they finally come and arrest Jesus because Peter abandoned him. Peter said, I'll die with you, Jesus. He said it a couple hours early, and now he's standing off to the side and some little girl's questioning him, causing him to call curses down on himself. That's how scared he was. But John, history shows that he was the only disciple that did not abandon Jesus. He was at the cross when Jesus was being crucified. And don't think that it's a coincidence that Peter talked about how much he loved him and John knew how much Jesus loved him. And that is what caused John to stay loyal, dedicated, devoted, and committed to Jesus, no matter what. Now, praise God, we know the story of Peter. He got reinstated and he, he got that revelation too. He sure did. And he walked it all the way out till, till his death. But in that moment, we see the, the subtle difference between wanting to love God because of who he is and then the stuff they saw Jesus do and having a revelation of his love for us. So I would encourage you today, if you've not had that, I'm gonna pray at the end of this service, I'm gonna pray that God gives it to you, but I encourage you to make that a priority in your prayer life, that God would reveal his love. There's all kinds of things that can get in the way of us really experiencing his great love for us. It could be an earthly father that let you down and it's hard for you to even comprehend that a heavenly father could love you unconditionally and passionately enough to come die for you when you've been mistreated by, by men in your life or leaders or bosses or fathers, whoever it is. But I'm telling you, God can give you that revelation. He can reveal it to you in ways that no one else could tell you with words. And he could change your heart and he could give you that love that will overwhelm you. And you might stand here and worship sometimes and you could tell people are getting emotional and you're like, I just don't get it. You can go from that point to being a ball and baby on the floor. Overnight, God does it because that's what he wants. He wants to show you his wonderful love for you. So that's his posture. Secondly is our posture. This is, the, this is where it gets a little hairy because we're talking about the battlefield of obedience versus rebellion. 
So I ask you today, what will your posture be? You know, posture is just another way of saying your approach. Okay, so what's your approach? Is your approach one of obedience or one of rebellion? Are you one that, that wants to honor God, that wants to obey his rules, his laws, and live for him, glorify him? Or are you wanting to kind of do your own thing? Are you in willful disobedience, which is what rebellion is, where you're saying, I'm going to do my own thing, I'm not worried about what God wants? Or are you somewhere in the middle where you've got, you know, I want to honor God with parts of my life, but there's also parts of my life that I am not willing to give him because I'm just not there yet, just not ready to do it. And I know it's wrong, but I'm just going to keep doing it because I'm just not ready to give that all over to him yet. And you're kind of riding the fence. You know, you're walking the fence. And we know pretty clearly what Jesus said in Revelation 3 about fence walkers. It doesn't, it doesn't end up well for us. He says, I want to vomit you out of my mouth when you're lukewarm. If you want to dip your toes in both sides and have it both ways and have your cake and eat it too, it, it angers our God. It's not a place for us to live in rebellion. In fact, Jesus says in John 14, verse 15, he says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. In the battlefield of our love relationship with God, God is asking us to take a posture of obedience. Now, you might say, well, I can still rebel and love God, right? Well, the answer to that, I would say biblically is no. I, you can't... You can't be in willful rebellion to an authority and say you love them. It, when, when I was a, a teenager in my later teens and I had a curfew and I'd stay out past curfew because I knew my parents slept like bricks and I would sneak in the kitchen window because I knew where the squeaks were coming in the, the main door and I'm sneaking in the kitchen window every night at four in the morning and going to bed, I was not loving my parents. Now, I had the emotional attachment to them. You know, I cared about them. I didn't want them to hurt. I didn't want anything bad to happen to them. I needed them because I needed a house to sleep in. I needed clothes and food, but I didn't love them. I wasn't respecting them. I, wasn't, I was saying that my way is better than yours. Your rules are ridiculous. I'm smarter than you. I'm going to do things my way, and I'm not, you're just going to have to be oblivious to it, which hilariously later in life, I remember talking to my mom and kind of confessing it, you know, 20 years later. And she just laughed. She said, I knew it. You weren't hiding nothing from me. I was praying God to make you miserable. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but you know, when I was doing that, I wasn't loving my parents. And when we're rebelling against God, we're not loving God. We're not, we're not honoring him because, because love is about honor, respect, dedication, commitment, devotion, reverence. We're not doing that when we're walking in rebellion and doing what we want. Rebellion says, I want to do what I want to do and when I want to do it and how I want to do it. And that's what we do when we say there's areas of my life that I know are displeasing to you, but I'm not giving them to you. So we're taking a posture of rebellion. We're not now, when you're taking a posture of obedience, it doesn't mean you never mess up. It doesn't mean sin's not any part of your life anymore. We're, as long as we're wearing these little flesh-colored things and walking on this earth, we're going to be having to deal with sin. So, but there's a difference between making mistakes and messing up and having a posture of obedience and embracing and gleefully, willfully living in the rebellion that we want to have. And, you know, in some cases, we've even seen where people have adjusted or reinterpreted the Word of God to suit their needs to want to be able to feel okay in their rebellion. 
where we've said, you know what, God can just turn a blind eye to some of this stuff. You know, I'm, I'm doing, I'm paying my penance. I go to church. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pretty good person overall, but you know what? There, I just can't think that God is not okay with me sleeping with my girlfriend. I just think he's going to just be okay with that. Or, you know, he's, he's okay with the fact that I lose my temper. Or he's okay with the fact that I have pride in my life or I have road rage or, or have these issues in my life that I'm just not willing to give to him that I've just kind of, I've just kind of embraced it and said, well, this is kind of who I am. You know, I just, I need affection and I'm not married, so what am I supposed to do, you know? And we've, we've justified it, but we're, what we're really doing is taking a, a posture of rebellion. And I can tell you, church, that's a scary place to be because it's a slippery slope once we go down that road because conscious disobedience is idolatry. And I, that's, a, that's a hard word, and I don't like it either. But man, it really makes me check my heart when I have those areas in my life where I'm thinking, God, I'm just not ready to give this to you yet. I'm just gonna, give me, give me five years and then I'll let you work on it, you know? But I'm actually embracing it. The Bible's clear. I believe the heart of God is clear that idolatry is alive and active in the church today. Now, it doesn't look like it used to look. We've given it a facelift. You know, it used to be you worship a golden calf or statues or monuments or some weird deity. We don't do that anymore. We're smart enough not to do that. But anytime we, we elevate our will over God's will, our will becomes an idol in our life. It becomes an idol. And it's very clear that that's exactly what it becomes because we are consciously saying, God, stay over there. I got my thing over here. And to think we can go in and out, we're deceiving ourselves. God wants our obedience. Samuel, when he caught Saul, when Saul did not do what he was supposed to do in one of the battles he went into, and Saul, Samuel found out about it. Look what he said to Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 23. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, which is witchcraft and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. So what Samuel does here is he lumps it all together. He's saying rebellion, witchcraft, arrogance, idolatry. He lumps it all together in this witch's brew of idolatry. He's saying what you're doing, when, you, when you're arrogant and you're, you're thinking that you can get away with something or you know better than God or you're just going to do this, it's idolatry in our life. And Jesus even goes... He goes on to tell us how we are to live this life for him. In Matthew 16 and 24, he says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. So Jesus is saying there's no place in the life of a, of a Christian for idolatry. There's no place because there's no place for me to elevate my will above his because he's saying if I'm going to be a follower of his, I actually have to deny myself. That means my will is, is pushed aside. I, I want to tell you today, and I don't mean this to sound harsh, but God doesn't care one bit about our will. He doesn't care one bit about our kingdom. He is about his kingdom. He is about his will. He is about his purpose. He's about his glory. He's about him and our part to play in that. And he wants us to be part of that, but it has nothing to do with our will. You notice there's no verses either about our will in the Bible. There's no place for it. There's no place in the follower of Jesus to say, well, my will trumps the will of God. Because Jesus says very clearly that we have to live a lifestyle of denial, 
a lifestyle of denying ourselves. And if you, if you are honest with yourself, we know that denying ourselves is not something we just do at the day of salvation. It's something we do every day, multiple times every day. You know what I do when I come in here on Sunday mornings? I, I just start praying when I come in and I come in my office. And the first thing I start praying every time is, Lord, today is about you. It's not about me. It's about you. I don't have to feel sorry for myself no matter what happens today. I don't have to feel good about myself no matter what happens today because it is all about you. And you know what? It gets my heart in a great place. And you know what happens? By second service, I have to do it again because I'm already getting back in myself. In worship, second service, almost every Sunday, I'm like, Lord, it's all about you. In fact, when we were singing that, it's all about you today, I was like, thank you. Thank you for the reminder. It's not about me. It's about you. We have to deny ourselves all the time time or else we will become idol worshipers for our own will if we're not careful and listen the blessing that comes from obedience is beautiful taking that posture of obedience is so beautiful we don't know it all the time we, we think you know we can enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season the bible tells us but man it's only a season and it ain't worth it jesus doesn't just have us follow his way because it's the right way there's blessings that come with it in fact, he promises us that in John 15, one of the best chapters in all the Bible. In verses 9 to 11, it says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. Remaining in his love is a full-time job. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. And I have told you this so that, here's why. This is why it's important to obey his commands and remain in his love. So that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Man, if you want the joy that surpasses all understanding, it comes from a posture of obedience. It just does. There is a supernatural occurrence that happens. The joy that surpasses understanding, the joy unspeakable that we can have in our life is a supernatural thing that we cannot get on our own. No money can get it. No relationships can get it. No material possessions can get it. Nothing in this world can give you that joy except the supernatural inpouring of Jesus, putting his spirit in us and giving us that joy that's unspeakable, that will remain in us. Here's the thing. The posture of rebellion, it makes us dumb. Sin makes us dumb. It really does. I speak from experience, church. <laughs> It makes you dumb. Amen. But the posture of obedience brings joy. Yes. Brings joy into our heart. And it's so beautiful and so worth having in our life. Okay, the third and final one. We got his posture, our posture, and now it's his standard. And the tension that comes with that in our relationship with him. And this is the battlefield of grace versus holiness. Yes. And here we go. <laughs> These two things should not be working against each other. That's right. They should be working together. Yes. But one of the greatest dangers facing the church today, and I want you guys to hear me on this, one of the greatest dangers facing the church today is not agendas from politicians. It's not society. It's not Hollywood. It's not even the devil. It is right smack dab in the middle of the church. And it is this, it is this, idea of changing the God of the Bible and exchanging him for some lesser deity that meets our needs and makes us feel good about ourselves. All right? So 
there's this march away from holiness towards this hyper grace, we'll call it, to where we can do whatever we want because of the grace of God. He's just so good. He loves us so much that no matter what I do, I don't have to worry about it because nothing can separate me from his love. Nothing can pluck me out of his hand. All these wonderful verses that we'll use and take out of context to make us feel like I don't have to worry about it because he's going to figure out a way to get me into heaven no matter what. And I'm telling you, church, this is very, very dangerous. Very dangerous. There is place for in the, Christian, the Christian's life for grace and holiness. There's plenty of room for both. And they are meant to work together. They're not to be, meant to be on opposite ends of the spectrum, that you're either, a, you're either a person that's dedicated to holiness or you're all about the grace of God. I'm about both. I'm about both all day, every day. If somebody asks me, are you about holiness or grace? I say, yes. Amen and amen. But we have to be careful that we understand what grace is in our life. Because, and I'm going to get to grace in a minute, but the, the, thing about, the thing about glossing over sin and willfully just embracing it and having this rebellious posture in our life because of grace and then assuming that God's just going to somehow figure out a way that he's going to just overlook it all tells us, tells me that those that believe that don't really understand how God looks at sin. Because I can tell you today, without question, God hates sin. He hates sin. Now, he loves us. In fact, he went to the cross because of how much he hated sin. And the Bible says in, uh, in Hebrews, uh, where is it? Hebrews 12. Second part of verse two, it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So God hates sin so badly that he, that he didn't even worry about the shame that the cross brings. He went to the cross for us because that's how much he hates it because he knows that sin separates us from him. Sin causes us to be, have shame and to hide from God. And he said, I don't want you to hide from me. I'm gonna make a way so that you can be with me. And his hatred of sin is demonstrated by what he had to go through to pay the price for our sin. Think about this. Jesus didn't pay for our sin by getting punched in the face. He didn't pay for our sin by getting spat upon. He didn't pay for our sin by getting his beard pulled out by the roots. He didn't pay for our sin by getting a crown of thorns smashed onto his head, sewing it to his head. That's not how he paid for our sin. He didn't pay for our sin by getting scourged, by getting uh, flogged and his, his skin literally filleting. That's not how he paid for our sins, just by that. He didn't pay for our sin by carrying a cross up a hill to Golgotha. He didn't just pay for our sin by getting nailed to that cross. He didn't just pay, get paid, he didn't just pay for our sin by getting a spear shoved into his side. He didn't just pay for our sin by dying the most gruesome death you could ever possibly imagine and his head swelling to twice its normal size. It wasn't just one of those things, it was all of those things. And that shows us what God thinks about sin. Amen? So if God hates sin that much, why would he do it in such a way that he's just letting us continue to sin and he's just gonna forget about it? It's not who he is. His grace is not a thing to, to give us a license to sin. It is the power to free us from sin. That's what his grace is. 
Now, when we do sin, his grace is there, and it covers us. He washes us white as snow. We don't have to live this perfect life, but we do have to take the posture of obedience and the posture of holiness, of pursuing holiness in our life. Look look, look what uh, the apostle Peter said in 1 Peter 1, 14 to 16. He says, as obedient children, okay, so he's talking to us. He's talking to Christians, all right? So this is for us. Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. That's God's heart for us. He's saying, take a posture of holiness. The grace will be there for you, but take a posture of holiness in your life. What what Peter is saying here is pretty clear. He's saying that only ignorant people Don't think that they have to pursue holiness. He says, don't be ignorant. Do not be ignorant. And, you know, when we talk about grace, and the the best explanation I've ever heard for the grace of God was from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, where he was talking about the fact that uh, God had given him a thorn in his flesh. And he said, I begged God three times to take this thing away from me. I mean, if he's asking three times, it's not some ho-hum, you know, God, when you get a chance. He's begging him, probably fasted, just begging God, please take this from me. Look what God says to him in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. He says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. Watch this. This is why he's saying he'll he'll boast about his weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. God's grace for us is the power that he gives us. When we embrace our weakness, his grace comes in to give us the power we need to overcome in our life. That's what grace is. It is a supernatural act of God in our life. It's not just a general God-forgiving sin. It's also a supernatural act of him working in us, empowering us to not only take that posture of holiness, but to be transformed into his likeness to have the power we need in those moments of weakness to be able to resist temptation, to have the power we need in those moments of trial to still have joy and hope and peace in him. It's his grace that gives us the ability during a pandemic to have a peace and a trust in God. It's all, that's his grace. That's exactly what it is. It's not anything else but the grace of God working in you and me to give us what we need to have his perspective and to be able to persevere in our life. That's, that's God's grace for each and every one of us. And he calls us to holiness, but he gives us what we need to help us to live that holiness out in our life. And confusion about this is what affects our love for God in enormous ways. Because God says, you can't, you can't love me and adhere to the, the, the past, to, to, be ign- to act like you did when you were ignorant and didn't know who I am and what I do. He says, I paid such an incredible price for you to be able to be free. And he doesn't settle for anything less than us pursuing that. It's not about saying a quick prayer one day and then just thinking we're good to go, we're on our way. This is a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle of denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following him. It's a lifestyle of giving ourselves to him and dedicating ourselves to him every single day. Because every single day, our flesh wants us to dedicate ourselves to our will. 
every single day. I've never had a day in my life where my flesh said, you know what, I'm not going to get up today. I'm going to let you have it and just let God have his way today. Never had one of those. I don't think I've had a three-hour stretch that I had one of those. It's all the time. My flesh is powerful. My flesh wants what it wants, and it doesn't want what God wants. And as we grow in, in, our, in our faith and we're transformed more and more into his likeness, it does get easier. My flesh doesn't win nearly as often as it used to, but it doesn't always lose. But I can tell you this, I'm taking the posture of obedience and holiness. That's what I'm taking in my life. And when I mess up, I know that he's there, not only to forgive me, but to cleanse me and make me whole as I turn to him. Hallelujah. Would you stand with me, please? I'm going to pray for you. God is so good to us. And I just want to, I want to close with this. I just, I kept, as I was preparing this, I just kept hearing the word perseverance, perseverance. You know, the Christian faith, the Christian walk is all about perseverance. It's just until we get that victory where we get to stand with him, we're going to have to persevere. And sometimes we are, sometimes we're going to lose the battle. Sometimes we're going to slip and fall. We're going to stumble. But I praise God that he is never there to condemn us. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I don't think I'm doing violence to the scripture to say there's no condemnation for those who love Jesus and are committed to him and dedicated, devoted, determined that we're going to love him with all of our mind, our soul, our strength, our heart, everything every part of us loving him. So I want to challenge you today to persevere. Persevere. It's worth it. It is so, so worth it. A bad day with Jesus is a good day. Is better than any good day without him. Because frankly, there aren't any good days without him. So I want to pray for you. I want to pray, you know, if you've never had that revelation of God's love for you, I want to pray for you today for that. I believe he can reveal it to you. I believe he can reveal it in a moment. It may take a time of dedication to him, but for some... But that's so important that we understand how much he, everything changed for me. Everything changed for me when I realized how much he loved me. I spent the early years of my faith trying to show him how much I loved him. Well, God, I love you so much. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and I'm not going to do this and this. And when I realized how much he loved me, I didn't even, it, it, it made some of those other things almost effortless because it was a response to his love, not me trying to prove myself. But it takes a revelation from him. It really does. So I want to pray for you for that today. Just even this, the posture that we have, that we would take the posture that God would want us to have. And that when we mess up, we'd be quick to repent. Christians should have a lifestyle of repentance. Jesus, when he told us how to pray, he said, pray that, that he would forgive us our sins as we forgive others. That's how Christians are supposed to pray. Always repenting. If you got all the sin whoop, whipped in your life and don't have to deal with any of it, praise God come up here you can preach for us but I promise you nobody can come up here and do that so we should be life, having a lifestyle of repentance and so that our posture looks more and more all the time like obedience and holiness than it did before so let's pray just receive this prayer today Father God we do, we do love you we thank you that your word is true Lord it does transform us God I thank you that we have your word it is so beautiful such a precious gift that we have. God, we thank you today for your love, for your great, great love for each and every one of us, that you demonstrated your love for us and what you did for us. 
And it was all birthed out of your, your passion for each one of us. Lord, I pray for those here today that have never experienced it. They've never experienced your love for them. They've never had that revelation of just how much you love them, that, that you didn't just die for the sins of the world, you died for them. God, I pray you'd give them that revelation today. Supernaturally, Lord, by your spirit, would you just begin to show them in their heart your feelings for them, that you really are a good father, that you love us so, so much, and that if, if I was the only person to ever walk this earth, I believe you would have died for me. And Lord, I pray that that would be real for everybody in this room, everybody under the sound of my voice today, that we would experience your great, great love and that that would be the foundation of our love for you. Lord, we don't wanna just strive to, to love you, to show you how much we love you because it's the right thing to do. We wanna do it in response to your love for us. Would you give us that revelation today, Lord Jesus? And God, I pray that you would help us to take a posture of obedience, a posture of holiness, and that we would walk in your grace, God. Lord, we repent where we have walked in willful rebellion, where we have made decisions to keep you out, Lord. We just tell you today we're inviting you in. Lord, would you help us to be transformed into your likeness? Lord, help us to want your will more than our own. Lord, forgive us for the idolatry in our heart. Forgive us for casting you aside to enjoy the pleasures of sin. Lord, we repent. We come to you, God, and we thank you that you forgive unconditionally. Thank you that as we confess our sins to you, that you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. Lord, cleanse us white as snow today. We need you. We need you, Jesus. We're not good enough. We're not good enough. But Lord, you in us, that's a powerful thing. We embrace our weakness today, Lord, because we know that in our weakness, you are made strong, that your grace comes into us and gives us the power to live free. We wanna be free, Lord. We wanna be free. We believe we'll have a greater impact on this community and on this society if we are free. So make us free, Lord, and help us to walk in that freedom, to honor you, Lord. It is all about you, Jesus. Help us to let help your kingdom come, your will be done in our lives and on this earth, just like it is in heaven. We honor you and we glorify you. And it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. And all God's children said, amen.